English, I'll get a bit more into the meaning of it. It's pronounced uh, Azar like razor. Um, and, uh, but just to give you a peek into the meaning of the name and, and, and why we named this series, this will come, uh, become clear here in a moment. Uh, but let me just to give you a peek into the meaning, I'll just say that this, that one of the descriptions of Eve in the book of Genesis um, is, is this word, is Azar. And in some ways, it's a description for many women in the Bible. Over the course of the next eight weeks, what we will be doing is we'll be looking at different women um, uh, in the Old Testament and the New, women that God uses to move forward the story of redemption and salvation that we will see in the Bible. Um, there's going to be a few different aims that uh, we have in undertaking this series. First, we want to learn from our spiritual foremothers. Um, some of the stories and people that we'll cover are stories that um, uh, women that you might be familiar with. Other stories will be ones that you've not heard or that you're less familiar with. Uh, and in all of it, what I, I hope and what our aim in putting this together is that, um, is that all of us will actually come to a, a deeper understanding of just the scripture, of just a, a, a more robust just biblical literacy. That parts of the Bible that we haven't looked at or read or that we're less familiar with, that, they would, that we would become more familiar with them. And secondly, we want to see how these women, in each in their own unique way, point us more deeply towards hope that's ultimately found in Jesus. So we want to notice how the women in the Old Testament provided echoes and signposts to the hope that they had in the coming Christ. And we want to take note of the ways that women in the New Testament lived in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so just a quick overview today, I'm going to kick us off by talking a bit about Eve's story and her background. But we'll also cover Hagar and Rizpah. We'll look at Deborah. We'll look at Anna and Mary and the Seraphonician woman. We'll look at Lydia. And over the course of um, this series, you actually will hear from different voices from within our congregation at Christ City. You'll hear from, from my wife, Lisa. She tells Deborah's story. You'll hear from one of our elders, Marissa Stubbs, as she guides us through Hagar's story. Pastoral associate Andrea Ackerman will help us understand Jesus' fascinating conversation with the Syrophoenician woman uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And then you'll hear from Justin and I as well. And though you'll hear from different voices and be guided through different stories, the aim of each is the same. One is to learn from our spiritual foremothers in the faith. And then two, to note how each story points us towards hope in Christ. Those are the aims. Now, before I get into Eve's story, I need to back up and tell a, another story. Um, because the thing is, for, for many of us, Eve's story is familiar, but we may only be familiar with a certain slice of the story. We may actually only be familiar with part of Eve's story. And so before we get to Eve, I want to actually start with God's story. One of the tools that we've introduced at Christ City um, Church uh, and something that we refer to often is this thing that we call the four-part gospel. And this didn't originate with us. It was introduced by other older theologians and missionaries, most notably British theologian Leslie Newbigin. And what the four-part gospel is, it's a way of understanding how in broad strokes this larger narrative of the Bible, and particularly God's overarching arc towards redemption and his renewal of all things. And the story starts with creation. We uh, read a part of it uh, earlier. And in creation, God is making all things. And at the end, of the, at the conclusion of this creation story, where God makes trees and he makes light and he makes dark and he makes water and he makes land and he makes people and he makes the cosmos and he puts everything in order. At the end of it, he says, it is all good. And even more than that, he says, it's all very good. And so the story begins with creation. It begins with a garden. It begins with a, with a right setting of, of, of all things as God placed them and positioned them. 
And then um, the story moves on. Things, though they are good, humanity has free will and free reign to follow themselves and refuse to follow God. And that event, that first occurrence of when humanity chose something other than God and God's ways is referred to as the fall. And the fall is when uh, rather than saying yes to God and centering God in the midst of their life, they center themselves. And from the fall, then things begin to, 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 to disintegrate. Relationships are broken, chiefly humanity's relationship to God, humanity's relationship with themselves, humanity's relationship in their own skin, and even with creation. That all of those relationships are broken between God, between people, within people, and within, between humanity and the world. And that's all that was lost in the fall. However, as broken as the story is in the fall, God doesn't leave his creation in the fallen state. It moves towards redemption that was found and highlighted in Christ. God begins to march towards the day when he rectifies and reconciles all, that, all the relationships, all the brokenness that took place in the fall. And that's the, the, the cosmic nature of what Jesus did on the cross. Yes, he rescued people, but he also began the right setting of all things. And so in Christ, in this good news, when Jesus took on all of the sin of the world, he took on all of the ways that people are broken inside of themselves. He took on all of the ways that people are broken between one another and the ways that people are broken between themselves and creation and especially and chiefly the ways that humanity has lost their relationship with God. All of that begins to be made right in redemption, in the movement on the cross. But then from there, God continues it. The story doesn't end with the cross, but it moves towards renewal. When God will ultimately finish what he started in the cross. When all things will be made new and all things will be made right. And as we live in between the cross on one hand and renewal on the other, we get signs and foretastes of what's up ahead. And we ache and long for the day when all things are made new and set right. The thing is, as we've talked about the four-part gospel, we have often referenced and said that there are ways that we can only, where we tell this story, but we only tell half of it. I grew up in a, in a church tradition that um, when we would tell this story, we would actually begin with the fall and then end with redemption. Where we would say, uh, uh, in the beginning, you were a sinner, I'm a sinner, everything is a sinner, and all things are broken, but thanks be to God, Jesus came and rescued us from our sin. That's true. All of that is the true and right recognition of the gospel. That's a piece of it, but it's not the full story. And we lose things when we just tell half the story. And we might even say that if you're only telling half the story, are you actually telling the story at all? There's others that um, I think even in a city like ours where we believe half the gospel, but it's a different part of it. It's a different half. It's, it's, it's fall and renewal. I think that that heartbeat of, of people that many times come to a city like D.C. and want to work on the Hill or work uh, in policy or at NGOs is because they recognize that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. That there's something that's in them, there's a, there's a gut churning in them that I would say that God has actually placed there. That they know things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And they want to get about setting things right. They want to get about a vision of renewal that they have, though it may not be informed by the Bible, but it's informed by their gut to say, we want to see things made right and new. But the way that we do it is that we just believe fall and renewal and we try and get there without redemption, without the cross. And we may not even remember that there was a time when it, when it wasn't this way. Because it wasn't always this way, friends. And likewise, there's a different way of believing the gospel, but, um, or a different way of telling just part of the story, but we don't tell the full story. 
I think in some ways this is actually what we've done with Eve's story. That we just sort of start with chapter 3. With, with Eve and Adam and a tree and an apple and a serpent. And we completely miss Genesis 1 and 2, which is also a part of Eve's story. And I would say if we don't start there, then are we really telling Eve's story? And so just as we think about this four-part gospel of creation, of fall, of redemption, and of renewal, when we look at Eve, I want us to look at all of that as well. What, um, what I want to do for us is to look at, at this larger story of Eve and to see what we might learn from this spiritual ancestor of ours and what she might want to say to us about God. If we're going to tell Eve's story properly, then it's right for us to begin with creation, to start in Genesis 1 rather than Genesis 3. In Genesis 1, beginning in verse 27, God created mankind. He created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And these opening lines... In this opening chapter of our faith story, Genesis 1, can't get much earlier than Genesis 1 in our faith tradition, but in these opening words, what we see is that God is communicating that when he is forming humanity, he was making men and women, both women and men, were made in the image and likeness of God. I don't think you're feeling me on this. This is Eve's origin story as well, friends. Eve is an image bearer of God. This is actually quite a countercultural claim in the Bible. As 21st century Washingtonians, we, we can miss this, but this creation account wherein God is saying that men and women are both made in God's image equally would have stood in sharp contrast to all of the origin stories of the ancient Near East in the day. You see, the Babylonian creation story has the primordial god Marduk overpowering the goddess Timot. He kills her, and from her destruction comes the creation of the world. And you begin to see subjugation happening there. The Canaanite creation story, which was around the Hebrews at the time, was a story wherein Baal kills the sea monster Yam, and in its wake, the world is created out of this destruction. Yet neither of these, nor any of the creation stories from the ancient Near East, lead to the victorious God identifying with humanity in general, nor with women specifically. However, in this subversive creation story, we see that God creating and identifying with his creation, including women, Eve is an image bearer of God, made in God's image. The story goes further in Genesis 1, verse 28. It's, this, verse 28 is often referred to in theological circles as the cultural mandate. This is the set of instructions that, God's, that God gives to these first humans, Adam and Eve. And in these instructions, God is calling upon those made in his image to cultivate the environments in which he's placed them. Verse 28 again, God blessed them, said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and every other living creature that moves on the ground. Now, look, without going into all of the linguistic nuances and turns uh, that deal with fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the fish, the basic meaning of what God is calling Adam and Eve to do in the garden and to which he's placed them is this. It's to steward it. It's to steward the things that are there. The things that are there, the trees, the fruits, the vegetables, the natural world, they're to be stewards of these things. 
They're to cultivate them and to care for them. They aren't to exploit them. They aren't to destroy them or devour them. From the trees, make a chair. Plant another tree. Got some tomatoes? Make salsa. And plant some other tomatoes. Take the things that God has provided and cultivate them and steward them. Don't just, don't just use them or pollute them for that matter. This mandate was given both to Adam and to Eve. To both of them together. And they were to be co-laborers in this effort. This is part of their image of Godness. This ability to steward and create and co-create with God in the garden when all things were made by God and made good. That's where the story begins. Eve was an image bearer. Now let me talk about image bearing for a minute. In the ancient world, uh, the ancient Near East, throughout the Roman world, even leading up into the New Testament, to deface an image of the king was to defile the king himself. So how did this happen in the ancient world? Wherever there were images or symbols of a king, whether it be on money or statues or paintings or buildings or wherever there was an image of the king, if someone came and defaced that, if they, if they carved it up or sort of ancient graffitied it in some kind of way, it was as though they did that to the king himself. But for followers of Jesus, shaped by this origin story that says that people are the image bearers of God, then the marring of God's image is the dehumanization, the, the derobing of one's humanity to something other than human. Okay? To mar the image of God is to say and to do things about a person or a people that erodes or undermines or denies that that person or those people are created in God's own image and that he created them. One of the practices that we have at Christ City Church is uh, we do this thing that we call naming life and death. Where we name life, where we name uh, the signs of God's work and his common grace that's poured out on the world as signs of his inbreaking kingdom. Another way to say it are the places where the image of God is being celebrated. And so we name those things. The other is that we know that it's contested ground, that God is not the only one that's around, but that there is an enemy, the devil, that prowls around like a lion and that comes at us like wolves. And so we name the death that he perpetrates. Death are signs of the enemy, of the enemy's work that uh, thwarts or destroys God's kingdom and uh, seeks to decimate those that are created in God's image. And so as followers of Jesus, we are duty-bound to remind one another and the world of God's images in all people. The places where that biblical message is being forgotten or places where it's being assaulted, then we work empowered by the Holy Spirit to lovingly and prophetically and graciously but powerfully proclaim a different message, to proclaim the gospel, to embody the truth of God's kingdom, that we are all made in God's image and we are all invited by faith to be conformed into Christ's image. And we work to dismantle the systems and structures that communicate to a person or a people that, are no long, that they are no longer images of God. We are called to this work because it's good news. Because it's an aspect of God's work in creation and Christ's work on the cross. And if we're to be faithful to living out Genesis 1, to living out Eve's story, 
then it means that we are to be a people that elevate the image of God in others and not denigrate it. It's why we pray for and work for racial justice to see connections between Genesis 1 and aspects of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's why we're called to care for and advocate for immigrants, whether they be documented, undocumented, refugees, or asylum seekers, because they're image bearers of God. It's why we're called to care for, to care for people. It's why in a country enamored with youth and strength, we herald the image of God in the elderly and the unborn. It's why even in the heat of debate, we as followers of Jesus need to remind the world that both lawbreakers and law enforcement are made in the image of God. And it's why the Me Too and Church Too phenomenon are aches that find their balm in Genesis 1 because there are places where the image of God has been marred in women. And so it's into those places of pain and life and death that God says, so I created Humanity in my own image, in my image, I created them. Male and female, I created them. Eve's story begins as an image bearer of God. And if we're going to tell this story, we have to start with the beginning. But Eve is more than an image bearer. Though that would be enough for sure. Eve... um, is also an Azar. Now, this part uh, may get a bit technical, uh, but it's also where we get the title of the sermon series, so stick with me, otherwise you're gonna go through the next two months being like, what is that word? <laughs> All right, so let's look back at Genesis, into Genesis at Eve's story. Let's pick up in chapter two. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to care for it, and the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must Not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This is the first spot um, where we encounter the phrase that's written in the the NIV translation of the Bible as helper suitable or suitable helper. It shows up a second time in Genesis to a couple of verses down in verse 20. So the man, verse 20 says, so the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and all the wild animals, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So that's the phrase again, suitable helper. Now, some of the older translations, uh, depending on if you, if you come up in a Christian tradition like the King James Version, it, translated, it translates this word, suitable helper, as helpmeet. Uh, and it restricts us to an arrangement that happens in marriage. And what happens is that the helper then begins to be looked at as sort of a, a, a subordinate position. And the implication being that Eve's purpose in creation was to be subordinate to Adam when you translate it in this way. However, when we look at how these two words are used outside of Genesis 1 and 2, that understanding of subordination doesn't actually hold up. Um, the two words that are here from Hebrew passage or Hebrew words, Azar and Konegdo. Azar uh, is translated helper. Konegdo is suitable. Now, uh, let me look at Azar for a minute. So, um, it does mean helper, but not in a subordinate way. This word is actually used 21 times in the Old Testament. I've just read you two um, when it's referring to Eve. Now, three times Azar is used to reference the nations that Israel is reaching out to for military help. And then 16 times it is referenced to God as the helper for Israel. Uh, Just a couple of examples in Psalm 20, 
uh, the psalmist is writing, may he send you help, Azar, may he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. Psalm 70, uh, but as for me, I am poor and needy. Come quickly to me, O God. You are my help. You are my Azar and my deliverer. Lord, do not delay. And so in none of these connotations would we think that somehow God is subordinate to Israel. There's no other spot where this means subordination. It means help. And almost all of the times outside of the Genesis 2, uh, it is consistently in a military context, in, in the midst of contested situations. We don't often think of the Garden of Eden as a contested situation, but there was an enemy present that God knew about and said, listen, this too, even though it's good and made well, I'm still giving you free will and free reign. And in that regard, I know that this is a contested ground, that you are going to have another option, not centering your life on me, but centering your life on yourself. And I want you to have a helper. I need you to have a partner in this, in this contested military sense of the word. Connectos, suitable, um, is the other phrase. Now, this word needs rehabilitation as well. It literally means in front of him, is, is sort of the, the literal mean, uh, meaning, or corresponding to him. And this, neither does this carry connotation of superiority or inferiority in it, but actually um, equality, um, a different but same, complementary in ways, complementary like the South Pole is complementary to the North Pole, not in one is better or more important than the other. And again, this is in the creation one and two narratives. Azar Konegdo, Eve for Adam, in order to faithfully follow God, to execute the stewardship to which he was called, the cultural mandate that was created, and walk with the one who created both of them and who loved both of them because they weren't meant to be alone. Carolyn Custis James, who is a, a theologian and writer and professor of biblical studies, is, is informed, um, written about this and has formed a lot of my thinking about this. She says this, God deploys the Azar to break the man's loneliness by soldiering with him wholeheartedly and at full strength for God's gracious kingdom. What we see is that Eve is an image bearer. She is also an Azar. But she's not just that either. She is... Uh, also a mother, and I want to use this term in a, in, in a family sense. I want us to look one more at the text. Genesis 2, verse 22, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 is where the story takes a turn. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? This is where the story takes a turn from creation to the fall. In the story, the enemy comes to Eve and to Adam and deceives them. He says, did God really say that? Uh, the thing is, oftentimes when we think about this story, when we imagine it, we imagine that um, uh, sort of Eve was out foraging one day and comes across the tree that uh, is there and she's like trying to skirt around it. And then like the, the serpent shows up and is like, hey, Eve, come over here. And she's like, like me, and like she sort of steps over to the tree, and the serpent's like, hey, you know, I got, a, I got an apple for you. I don't know why we think it was an apple, 
but we're just like apples. They're in season. You know, I, like my kids are like, I don't like apples. Like, you know, maybe if it was like an orange or something. But anyway, it doesn't. So it's like he, you know, like tricks her to come over there and then sort of and then she bites it and then she like sneaks back away, goes across town, other part of the garden, and then gives the apple to Adam. But the thing is, that's not the story as it's described in Genesis 3. It's actually that they're both there together. And that what you can actually see is, is Eve uh, in some ways really exercising her, her azar connectedness right there with Adam. She's trying to say, no, but what about, well, God did say this. And she, and she is raising questions, and there's no, there's no problem with Eve raising questions about God. We have an entire Bible of people that raise questions. That's, that was never the trouble there. So that what took place in the fall was in the presence of both of them, both our spiritual forefather and our spiritual foremother. So this image that we have, that it was, it was Eve and then later Adam, it doesn't bear weight under the story of Genesis 3. You see, the trouble started when neither... Adam nor Eve spoke the truth. The tragedy was when they didn't speak what they knew to be true of God. The real problem was in rejecting and disobeying God's word and God's voice became one of many voices instead of the one voice against whom all other voices ought be measured. And so what was lost in the fall was their relationship, their intimate relationship with God, one who, who walked with them in the cool of the day. And what was also lost was their shame-free relationship with one another. But what wasn't lost in the fall was their image of God quality. J Custis James would again say that Azar never sheds her image-bearer identity. Not here, not ever. God defines who she is and how she is to live in the world, and that never changes. The image bearer responsibilities to reflect God to the world and to rule and subdue on his behalf, it still rests on her shoulders too. There was a lot that was lost in the fall, but that isn't one of them. We move forward from here. In our story, we see in the cross things that are regained, that begin to be regained of the things that were lost in the fall. Most notably, our connection with God. That what Christ is offering on the cross is a reconnection with the relationship with God that was lost in the fall. But not just that. Even as we are image bearers of God, we are now image bearers of Christ what also takes place in the cross is that there's all of this language of what happens when we place our faith in Christ. And one of them is that we become a new humanity. And the other is that we become a new family. These New Testament images of what happens between men and women whose relationship with God that was lost uh, in the garden and whose relationship with one another that was broken in the garden now gets to be restored. In Ephesians 2, for example, we find these words, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of one common household. 
In Galatians 4, it would say this, because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. This is family language that takes place because of what Christ did as we are all brought into his family. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you his heir. This is a blessing that is bestowed both on men and women as we follow Christ together. Things get restored and renewed. The relationship between humanity and God and humanity with one another. Because of Christ's work on the cross, humanity's relationship with itself and with the world gets restored. And that's how we are now to relate to one another. As family, in this way, this is what I mean when I say that Eve is our mother. And that means that we are her daughters and sons. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, that we're grafted into a new humanity, we're grafted into a new family, and the ways that we now relate to one another is as brothers and sisters. Now, our relationships between men and women is to also point us towards the renewal that is to come. Creation, fall, redemption, renewal. In what ways do we relate to one another when Christ finally returns and restores all things? These relationships between men and women is to be marked by love, by brotherhood and sisterhood, pointing us to the day when all things are made new, including relationships between men and women. i just talk about something that's maybe a bit tender, and, and I mean no disrespect on, on any of this. When I was a young man in, in ministry, now I'm just talking like I'm like 80 years old all of a sudden. I don't know where that came from. Man, man gets a doctorate now. It's like, you know, when I was young, <laughs> whatever, dude. But I do remember being shaped by um, men and women who cared deeply for me and who, and who cared for my longevity in ministry and who cared for, uh, for my reputation and who, and who cared to see me walk in, in paths faithful and pure and righteous. And they, and they um, gave me some marks of, of what my behavior ought to be. And one of them was, was a... Was a Sort of a rule, it's come to be called the Billy Graham rule, because it was a rule that Billy Graham had, about it, that he would never be alone with a woman if he was traveling or one place or another. That was a, that was a rule that was sort of, Watson, if you want to be faith, this is what you should do. And, and, and we are in between sort of redemption and renewal. We have to recognize sort of, you know, that there is sexual tension and there are temptations. But I also recognize that over time that there, that there became a way that 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 my own living out of that rule began to shape the way that I viewed myself and the way that I viewed women. And it began to view myself as just one who's just one step away from jumping into bed with somebody. And it had me viewing sisters in the Lord as though they were just some temptation that I needed to guard myself from. Rather than saying, maybe there's another way that we ought to embody brotherhood and sisterhood that lifts up the redemption that took place on the cross, that recognizes that because of our faith in Christ that we are freed from sin and that we can walk in holiness, not on our own, but by the power of the Spirit in us. And that in that way, for me, every woman becomes an Azar Konegdo. Not just my wife. There's a unique relationship, obviously, that I have with her. But that there's other sisters that I need that will point me towards the day when all things are made new and made right. And so how do we live into this way that as followers of Jesus, that love one another, men and women, that point one another to the renewal that is ahead? 
And so in that way, I begin to say, I think that there's maybe something else. Now there's safeguards and other things that I put around me. Lisa, my wife, has access to the calendar, all of these other kinds of things that we do. But at the end of it, our aim is to say, what we're lifting up is a vision of relationship between men and women that embodies the new humanity, that embodies the brother and sisterhood that is found in Christ Jesus. It doesn't turn a blind eye to the fact that we're still broken and fallen people, but it does look uh, first and foremost, to Christ's work on the cross and the renewal that is ahead. In this regard, it's us walking faithfully and embodying not a subordinate way that men and women relate to one another, but a, but a way that is healthy and whole that says we're brothers and sisters and that we are in the midst of contested ground, but that together we can soldier together as soldiers of love, Pointing us all towards a day when God makes all things new. So let me just, I guess, conclude it with these questions here. For some of you in this room, for some of us more than others, the image of God in you has been marred. My prayer for you is that even in looking back at God's original plans and his intentions and looking forward to the day when all things are made new, finding comfort in the cosmic implications of Christ's work on the cross, that you would find healing, that you would know that the power and work of the Holy Spirit can heal and restore and renew, and that you, more than anything else, are made in the image of God. In the image of God you're made. Some of us, we have been the ones that have marred. We have been ones that have marred the image of God and others by things that we said or failed to say, by actions we took or failed to take. And what I want to say to you and to me is that there's forgiveness. That's what Christ came for, is so that relationships may be restored, and so that you may experience his great grace and forgiveness. For others in the room, there are those that you care about whose image of God, Godness is being marred, even as we sit here. What I want you to know is that God is active, and that his presence is in our midst, and he is with them. So in whatever ways or places that we need to sit with this message from Eve to us, of her reminder to us of who she is in our lives and the ways that she points us to the God who is our helper, the God who is our protector, the God who is our maker and our creator, and the God who is our father and mother, who has made us all. And that way we hear rightly from Eve's story and recognize that in Christ that we have healing and forgiveness, and in the power of the Spirit, we have his presence. So let me pray for us. Come, Holy Spirit.
Spirit of God. God, I pray that your, that your presence would rest full with these brothers and sisters that are here in this room right now, God. I pray that they would experience you as, as our heavenly parent that, that wraps their arms around us and says, remember who you are, child. I made you in my image. You have my fingerprints. It's my breath that's in your lungs. It's my spirit that's in your body. God, I pray that those in this room, that they would experience that, that they would have a sense of your affirmation and your delight over them, God. I pray that particularly for our sisters in the room, God. God, in your, in your plan of redemption, it was through a woman that our Savior was born. In the plan of redemption, it was a woman who was first at the cross. So God, I pray that for the sisters in the room whose image of godness has been marred, I pray that they would experience, even in this moment, a measure, maybe it would be a great measure of healing as you rest on them, God. Well, there's others of us, and one way or another, we've marred the image of God in others. And things that we've thought, or things that we've done, things that we've said, or left unsaid. Or God, even in our pursuits of things that are right, we marred the image of God in those that we thought were wrong. And in so doing, we've, we've wounded you. So, God, I pray in that place that we would experience forgiveness that comes through Christ Jesus. And Lord, there's, it can be overwhelming sometimes to know how many are being violated and being told that their lives don't matter as much as other folks. It can be overwhelming, God. But God, I pray that, that you are a God that is everywhere all at once, that you are a God who is not bound by geography. And so God, I pray that in those places, in those spaces, that even in this moment, that your presence would be palpable. That you would be the God who is ever and always reminding those that are created in your image of who you are to them, even as you woo them into deeper relationship with you. God, I pray that you would withhold the hand of the oppressor that is looking to mar the image of God in people because it's not good for them either, Father. That's not what you made them for. God, I pray that even as we begin this march through the, our sisters in the Bible, God, that you would stir in us what it means to follow you and that our hope that is ultimately found in you. pray all of this in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Jesus, the God of the apostles, and the God of Eve. pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.